Uh, Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to skip over the next passage in this book and begin in the middle of the text. And let's get into the text. I I, want to begin by uh, something that I heard at our Sovereign Grace Church's pastor's conference a few years ago. Um, You know, we often talk about being a gospel-centered church, doing gospel-centered things. Um, and and you know, you've got to stop and ask yourself, well, what, what exactly does it mean to be gospel-centered? Uh, how do you define gospel-centered? Uh, Jeff was actually preaching from the text that Chris read in introducing his prayer from Colossians 1 in the opening message. And uh, he, was, he was just declaring the person of Jesus Christ, how all of salvation and all spiritual abundance are in him and from him. And so he's winding down the message. And he said this, and it really caught my attention. He said, we must not depersonalize the gospel. We must not depersonalize the gospel. He was speaking of how we can separate the gospel, the good news of salvation through Christ, from the person of Christ. How do we do that? Well, we talk about being gospel-centered or being on gospel mission or saying that this issue is a gospel issue. As some whites might say, uh, racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. But what we can do is depersonalize those things and make them separate from the person of Jesus Christ. If I am gospel-centered, it's more than being humble and gracious toward other people. It's more than putting my faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Being gospel-centered is making the focus of my entire life the resurrected and ascended person of Jesus who comes to me in every life situation by His Spirit, through His Word. You cannot separate the gospel from the living, active person of our King, Jesus. We've gathered here in His name. He is present here right now. The passage we're about to read can deliver us from the terrible mistake of making a the gospel, a vague assumption, or a general principle, or even a way of life that's lived apart from the personal engagement with the Lord. So the call of the text today is to be aware of Jesus, to make him central to all our plans, all our desires, and not to acknowledge them, him, and then go live the rest of our lives uh, uh, apart from a knowledge of his presence and purpose for us. So let's read uh, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 20. These are God's words I'm about to read. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethesda! 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, now he's praying. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray as Jesus, you said, you reveal the Father to us that you would reveal yourself and the Father to us in this text and that we would see you and that we would be struck by how beautiful and wonderful and terrible you are. Come to us now. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage serves as an application of the previous passage, which tells us of how John the Baptist and Jesus have been publicly slandered, and as a result of this slander have been rejected by most people. The direction of Jesus' words point us this way. Where you stand in relation to Jesus is a choice between death and life between light and darkness between finding rest and being crushed where you stand in relation to Jesus the person of Jesus is a choice between life and death light and darkness finding rest and being crushed now I've broken the text into three parts and I will expound on them one by one uh, in each part, Jesus is pointing to himself. So altogether, they teach you to follow Jesus. And if you are following him, it means you will repent of your sins to him. You will look at him and listen to him, and you will take up his yoke. So the first five verses, verse 20 through 24, I've entitled a frightening denunciation. A frightening denunciation. Notice how in this 
text, verse 20, opens with Jesus denouncing three cities. Now, these were three Jewish communities in the region north of the Sea of Galilee. They would have been among the larger towns. In Matthew 4, we learn that Jesus lived for a time in Capernaum. So he knew the area well. It was in this region that Jesus drove a demon out of a man. It's here that he healed a paralyzed man after his friends lowered his bed from the roof because they couldn't fit him into the crowded house where Jesus was taking, was teaching. And, and that kind of activity, that, that makes the news. In this region, Jesus healed a Roman military officer's son. And he did many, many more miracles that are not recorded. Jesus denounces the entire city. He pronounces judgment on them with that word. It's a word of strong emotion. Jesus is indignant because the people of these cities saw his miracles and yet they did not repent. In Jesus' mind, they have done something horrible. And so he pronounces a woe upon them. Now, woe in the Bible is a word that says judgment is coming upon you. It's a pronouncement of judgment. If they had repented, Jesus' response would have been different. Now, when Jesus talks about repentance, he's referring to an admission to God that we've offended him through our thoughts and our words and our actions and a turning to God for forgiveness and to follow him in his way. So repentance is two moves. It's a movement away and a movement toward, away from sin and self-sufficiency, toward righteousness and dependence on the person of our God. So Jesus is saying that if you have seen his miracles, you should turn to him, confess your sins to him, seek his forgiveness and follow him. If you have seen his miracles, you should turn. Isn't that interesting? Let's stop for a minute. I want to think about this. Why should seeing a miracle make you repent? And I'm going to answer that question with another story of a miracle from the Gospel of Luke. (coughs) Before he was a disciple... Of Jesus, Peter worked as a commercial fisherman. Luke tells us about a time when Peter had had a terrible night fishing and didn't catch a thing. He and his fellow fishermen are finishing their night's work by washing and mending their nets when Jesus asked to borrow their boat so he could use it as a preaching platform. When he's done preaching, he returns the boat and tells Peter to launch out again and drop the nets. Peter balks at this. I mean, he's a professional fisherman, okay? He knows what the water's like. And yet he obeys. He said, okay, I'm going to do it. And the catch is so great that his nets begin to rip. And they have to call other fishermen nearby to help them haul in the catch. So how does Peter respond? when he experiences this miracle. He jumps out of the boat, wades to the shore, and falls on his knees at Jesus' feet. And this is what he says. Depart from me, 
for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Not, hey, thanks for the fishing tip. But please leave. I don't deserve to be in your presence. The miracle gave Peter an experience of God's power and God's goodness. Peter thought that given his sins, he didn't deserve either. And so the miracle leads Peter to repent. Now that is not how the towns of Chorazin or Bethsaida or Capernaum responded. Rather than repenting, they ignored Jesus or they slandered him, calling him a glutton and a drunkard because he goes to dinner with the wrong kind of people. It's not that every person in each town rejected Jesus, but the general response of the town's population was to ignore him and criticize him. And so Jesus compares Chorazin and Bethsaida to Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were big cities on the Mediterranean coast, not far from Galilee. They were ancient cities that made their wealth through trade, and they were notorious for their idolatry, which they exported to Israel. And so you can read in the Old Testament prophets, they repeatedly will denounce Tyre and Sidon. But Jesus said that he knows that if he had done this, his miracles in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And that's the way ancient people publicly demonstrated their deep sorrow. It gets worse. Capernaum is compared to Sodom. Now, Sodom, you might remember from the book of Genesis, was renowned in the Old Testament as a city so wicked that God destroyed it by fire, never to be rebuilt. Jesus said, But if he had gone to Sodom and done the same miracles he did in Capernaum, the people of that ancient, wicked city would have repented. In verse 22, we learn that Capernaum expected to be exalted to heaven. They thought they deserved heaven, given their credentials, their Jewish credentials. But Jesus tells them that rather than heaven, they are assigned to the place of the dead, to Hades, the same place where the people of Sodom are, and that the punishment the people of Sodom endure in Hades will be easier to bear than the punishment awaiting the people of Capernaum. Now, this, this is shocking. Sodom's sins were citywide participation in rape and murder. Capernaum's sins were ignoring Jesus and discrediting him as someone who had the wrong kind of friends. It tells us a little something about what God finds more serious. He's not downplaying the horror of the sins of Sodom. He's showing us the deeper horror of rejecting Him. So seeing a miracle done by Jesus should produce in you and in me a response like Peter's, not like the people of Capernaum. Now, you might be sitting here saying, you know, I've never seen Jesus do a miracle, so how does this 
relate to me. And this is how I'd respond. That if you have heard or read the Gospels, you have seen his miracles. Because the Gospels are a perfect reporting of Jesus' works. Given to us out of the very memory of God by the Spirit in the Bible. So you can see these miracles. You can know what it says in the gospel about Jesus doing miracles. You can know that it describes exactly what happened. So in Jesus' miracles, we should recognize God's goodness and our sinfulness. God's power and our weakness. And in response, we should turn to Jesus and repent. If we do not, we'll be shocked when he denounces us. So a shocking denunciation. Number two, a surprising revelation. Let's read verses 25 to 27 again just to get it in our memory here. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, we're going from one shocking pronouncement in the previous passage into another. And if you're looking at what this text says, and you're an American, this should be a little hard to swallow. We believe here in America that if we want something, we can and should go out and get it. In the American mind, if you want to know God, you go out and find him yourself. You compare the different religious and different philosophies and say, you know, I've done my analysis and I've decided that This is the religion that's good and right for me. It's all up to us and our investigation. Jesus says in this text that God actively hides Jesus' identity from some and actively reveals Jesus to others. God hides himself from some people. And to others... He reveals himself and his son to people. In verse 26, we see that this is God's gracious will. That's how the English Standard Version translates it. Uh, Literally, Jesus says that God's hiding and revealing are his good pleasure. It's a part of a saying that would have been common in, in the Jewish community there. When someone intended to do something and took the initiative and did it, it gave him good pleasure. Felt really good. He liked it. He enjoyed it. When God chooses to reveal his son to little children, it gives him pleasure. Now, we must apply this contrast in hiding and revealing to the previous passage. Okay, so this is coming on from the Chorazin, Bethesda, uh, Capernaum stuff. The people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum thought they were wise and understanding. 
They did not think they needed Jesus. They thought they could make their way in the world without Jesus. And this is a massive irony because the wise and understanding in human terms are fools in God's accounting. The people the Father chooses are compared to little children. Now, this is a very specific word, little children. It's the word we would use for infants and babies, not for a four-year-old or a six-year-old. It immediately brings to mind my one-year-old grandson, Micah. When Micah needs something, might need food or a diaper change or he's experiencing pain in his tummy, he doesn't go to the fridge and fix himself a sandwich or go searching the house for a fresh diaper or ask where he can find the Tums. He cries, and he's loud. He cries for mommy. And if she's not available, he'll settle for dada. And if he's not around, he'll settle for a brother or a sister. Micah really can't do anything for himself. But you know what Micah knows? He knows who can. And so he cries out. Jesus says, That his father, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of all things, reveals himself to people who realize that they are incapable of getting themselves through this life by their own wisdom and understanding. To know the father and to receive from the father, you must come through the son. And in verse 27 We read a a prayer of praise from Jesus to the Father where we learn that we can grasp nothing of God that pleases Him unless we learn it from the Son. So this is a surprising revelation is that God chooses to whom He's going to reveal Himself and the people He chooses, and we could spend a lot of time on this because it's deep wisdom here, but the people He chooses are those who approach Him as babies. And then the last section of our text that I've entitled, A Gracious Invitation. Let's read. It's so beautiful. Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus makes an invitation to all people. There's no limitation. He's not picking out in the crowd whom he's going to reveal himself to and who he's not. It's for everybody. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, this is his appeal to you right now in this context to come to him. People from Capernaum and even people from Clarksburg, come to me, he says. If you see him in his goodness and recognize his power through his miracles, and if you realize that you cannot get through this life on your own strength, let alone get into heaven, and if you realize that you can only know and understand God the Father through God the Son, 
you'll hear this invitation. It will resonate in your heart. You're going to say, I got to follow this person, Jesus Christ. It's an invitation, Jesus says, to those who who labor and are heavy laden. While verse 26 tells us that God chooses as he pleases those who see him and those to whom he's hidden, verse 28 is an open invitation. If you're, if you're laboring, you're weighed down, you're burdened, Jesus Christ is calling you. He invites you to be relieved of that dead weight burden that you carry around. On the other hand, if you think you can handle life on your own, you won't see and you won't respond to Jesus' invitation. Now, this was not, I'm sure you all realize this, this was not just an ancient problem. This is a really contemporary problem. It's as hard to see Jesus today as it was in the first century Jewish Galilee because we think we are wise and understanding. I want to I tell you about a college course that just, to me, it just illustrates uh, how we think here in America and how we as Christians are prone to think because this permeates just about everything. So at Stanford University, one of the most popular courses on campus is taught by two professors from the engineering department. And it's called Designing Your Life. The two men who created the course teach their students to take the same design principles they use for designing a website or an electric car and apply them to developing a design for your life. I'm not making this up. You can look it up. The subtitle for their course is How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life. How? Well, you do it yourself. You do it for yourself. The intro video explains how you first decide what you want to build, then you reject the bad ideas. They don't tell you, in the, at least in this video, by what standard you know an idea is a bad one, but they do mention that making it your goal to get rich is not the way to go. And Hey, this is Stanford and Silicon Valley. It makes sense. Then, once, you, once, you ha- once, you, once you've decided what you want to build, you build a number of prototypes of what might lead you to a well-lived, joyful life. And they direct you to try out each of your prototypes. And once you've found a prototype that really works for you, you follow your self-made design path, re-engineering as you go, until you reach the joy of a well-designed, self-lived life. Isn't that stunning? But it's for real. And you know what? I'm vulnerable to this kind of stuff. I'm vulnerable to people who give me a how-to manual on how to find joy. Now, it's easy to rant on this. It is deeply selfish. It is deeply individualistic. But I don't want to rant today. I want to lament. In the language of Jesus, this is heavy labor. This is soul-crushing. 
It may work for you for a while, but what do you do when you chase your dream only to find out this well-designed dream was a fantasy? What happens when you find out that chronic disease destroys your ability to fulfill your design of being a mountain guide? What happens when those people who were supposed to share your dreams betray you? Rather than criticizing our selfish society, I think we need to weep for the weary and heavy laden, crushed under the burden of building a life that only God can make. Look, we live in Clarksburg here and surrounding communities. A lot of successful people walking around out there designing their own lives. Don't ever look down on them. Instead, we should say, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner, and have compassion for people who are crushed under the pressure to succeed, to bring about that joy-filled, well-lived life. The self-sufficient of Capernaum and Sidon and Silicon Valley look to their gods and their self-sufficient wisdom, and one day it all comes crashing down on them. And so they cast about, and we see people all around us, and sometimes we do this ourselves. We cast about for relief. Give me rest from the burden I'm carrying. Maybe we think that rest comes in abandoning a marriage and family, or maybe in alcohol or medical marijuana. But that only increases the burden. It may take 5 or 10 or 20 or 40 years to realize that you can't design a life that leads to joy. And if you recognize that, if you are young, if you are here today, you're a child. This is a gift. Because you already know, I I got a lot of limitations on what I can do. And a lot of stuff I try to do, mom and dad say, "Uh uh-uh. But you want to you develop a life where you try hard things and do hard things, but you do them because Jesus designed you to do them. Because that's the life he's designed for you. If God is merciful, you come to realize that you are an infant when it comes to finding life and joy. And when you come to realize you're that infant, then you can hear Jesus say to you personally, come to me. This world is cold and cruel and demanding. It celebrates winners and it rejects losers. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly to the losers. He meets us in our weakness. He says, come to me. Not come to a new program. Not come to a new set of rules. Not come to a new career. Not come to some pathetic human savior. Come to me. Come to me like an infant comes to his mother. An infant who only knows how to cry out for help. Come to me and I'll reveal the Father to you. Come to me. And I will give you rest. 
As we read the entirety of the Bible, we learn that ultimate rest, this is talked about really beginning in Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, ultimate rest is to be with the Lord in heaven. But Hebrews 3 and 4, which talk much about the rest that God gives us, says that today we can enter into this rest. Today, we can enter into this rest, even in the sorrows of this world and all our toil and our regular failures to follow Jesus. We can enter his rest today. Jesus speaks of entering his rest as dropping the heavy yoke of this world and bearing the yoke he has made for you. So here's what we do in, in response to the invitation to design your own life. You simply say, Jesus, you're going to be the designer of my life. And I'll accept whatever design you have created for me before the foundation of the world. This design is good. It's relatively, compared to the heavy yoke of the world, it's relatively easy and light. You will bear it as a sinner. It will include sorrows and disappointments and difficulties. But still, his burden is light. And it's easy to carry because he made it light and easy for individual you. This does not mean that life in this world isn't hard. We must remember how Paul characterized his life in this age, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. How could it be renewed? Jesus says, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The Christian's life outwardly will at various times and in various ways be quite difficult. I now can say this from long experience. But still, Jesus promises us rest for our souls today. He does not crush his needy children. He gives them what they need. The burden he puts on us is light. He gives us rest for our souls. In this text, our Lord invites you to see him, to see the one with the power over sickness, death, and the devil. He invites you to come to him as a little helpless child. He invites you to lay down the burden of designing your own life and to take up the yoke he has designed for you. Jesus denounces self-satisfied, the self-satisfied, and he denounces the self-sufficient. He reveals himself to little children and he invites anyone who will hear to come to him for his yoke is easy and his burden, it's light. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus says you 
have come to us in these words, your very words, perfectly reflect what you said back in Capernaum 2,000 years ago, that you're speaking right here and right now to us today. We pray that we would embrace your design for our lives and that we would recognize that we cannot make it it happen by ourselves. We pray that we would see you in your miracles and repent of our self-sufficiency and our pride and turn to you, come to you, accept the burden and the yoke that you lay upon us with the promise that you will not overwhelm us with these burdens. Lord, I pray that those here walked in just burdened by difficulty, heaped upon difficulty. I pray that they would see you and that you got their life. You you got it under control and you're not asking anything of them, but that it would be easy and light and come with your rest. I pray, Lord, that this text would transform our prayers and that we would stop praying that you would get on board with our plan and turn our prayers to show us your plan so we can pray for the fulfillment of that plan. So do this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.